In this episode, I have the pleasure to speak with Kirk Perry. After 23 years at Procter & Gamble in a senior level position, he talks about why he uprooted his family to move to California and become president of Brand Solutions at Google. I love Kirk. Enjoy this episode. Failing. 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 We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Well, I want to welcome Kirk Perry. Kirk, thank you so much for being on the phone with us today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So you and I spoke last month, which I could have talked to you for like two hours. It was so awesome. Um, and you know, <laughs> you know, the theme for Failing Forward is is all about sharing stories around failures that people have had and, and how it raised them or helped them with future success. Um, so I want you to maybe share some stories with us today around some obstacles or struggles um, that you had that were super meaningful, but maybe not ones that you've shared with others. I mean, I know that you're going to have some repetition, but I want some exclusive Kirk Perry stories. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I I, I will do my best on that front. Um, You you know, it's interesting. I I have so many stories of where I've fallen. Um, I have to sift through them all, but I a couple, a couple that come to mind for me is um, I was when I was I was with Procter and Gamble for almost 23 years before coming to Google, but actually that could have been like five or six years at Procter and Gamble because I got promoted to brand manager about three years in, and I thought, gosh, that you know I've arrived. Being a brand manager at Procter and Gamble doesn't get any better than this. But then a series of things happened to me because, you know, I came straight out of undergrad and my only experience in the corporate world was P&G. And one of the things I didn't really realize growing up in the company is that when you get to a certain level, you really start to see the bureaucracy and the frustrations that, that come along with, with a big company. And so I remember there, was, there were things that happened, like I showed up one Saturday morning with my two-year-old daughter to do some work. I'd been asked to prepare something for an early board meeting the next week, and so I had to come in on Saturday because I couldn't get it all done, and I brought my two-year-old along with me. As I'm walking through the lobby, I hear security, you know, please check into the security office. And (laughs) so I go in, and they said, uh, you know, who is this with you? And I'm with my two-year-old daughter, my (laughs) my daughter. And they said, uh, you, you you can't bring her up. You don't have clearance to bring your daughter in. I said, what? I said, she, first of all, she's two. Second of all, she's not a, I'm a spy. brand manager. What do you mean? What do you mean? I can't, can't bring my daughter up. Like, Sorry. If you, if you want to bring her, you have to call your division president. So I had to call my division president on a Saturday to get permission to bring my two year old in. And I could tell you 10 other little things like that, that happened that just got me to the point where I was so frustrated I could pop. And then I got a call one day from an executive recruiter and I, you know, at PNG, you get plenty of executive recruiter calls but because I was in such a state of frustration, I took it and listened. Guess what? I flew out um, to an unnamed uh, beer company in Golden, Colorado, <laughs> and they uh, they wined and dined me and wooed me. And I thought, gosh, you know, I'm going to get a big promotion, Golden, Colorado, sports, beer, mountains. What, what more could I ask for? And so I marched in one day and turned in my resignation. And I remember my boss at the time was shocked because I'm from Cincinnati, right? Well, nobody, nobody, nobody from leaves. Cincinnati quits the, 
quits the company voluntarily. What am I going to tell people? I'm like, I don't know. That's your problem. I, I'm leaving. And I went through the litany of things that, uh, that I, I had issues with. And so I remember I felt so good after that because I was a brand manager telling my marketing director. Well, the next morning, my, my, my category manager, my general manager at the time, uh, walks down to my office. He's like, hey, you have a minute. He shuts the door and he said, well, what, what's going on? I explained it to him. I'm leaving. You know, I'm not going to stay. You're not going to talk me out of leaving. And I gave him a litany of reasons why I wanted to leave. And I rem- I'll never forget as long as I live his response. He said, he said, Kirk, there, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the people who see challenges and they run from them and they get frustrated by them and then they move on to the next thing and then they keep moving on. And then there's another kind of person who sees challenges and says, you know what, Dad, I'm going to stay and I'm going to fix them and I'm going to make sure I fix those issues that I have. And he said, Kirk, I want to know what kind of man you are. Are you the man that runs from your problems or are you the man that takes them head on and fixes them? <laughs> wow. And, you know, it was like this sucker punch right in the gut <laughs> because I was, I was ready to go. I had, in fact, the worst part of this whole story is I had accepted. I did a conference call with my soon-to-be new organization. I had gotten emails from them. I had, you know, uh, ta- you know, already started looking into real estate. I, I was moving ahead. And I went home that night just absolutely sick to my stomach. I called my wife. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? You know, he, he laid down this challenge to me. And, and my wife said, you know, you're just going to have to pray about it. You're going to have to. And this is before my faith really took root. So I'm like, what do you mean pray about it? Like, what, what does that mean exactly? I, I need some help making this decision. And right. So for the first time in my life, I probably prayed about something related to business. And, you know, I, and, and I remember I was up all night, literally all night. I was doing spreadsheets. I'm like, what's, you know, pros and cons, weighted average scoring models. Should I go? Should I leave? But I remember falling asleep at like 4.30 in the morning and waking up wide awake at 6, 6.30 and thinking, oh my gosh, I, I, I know I have to stay. Wow. And it was just this peace and this, you know, unbelievable calm that I had about staying, even though my mind and body were already moving out to Golden, Colorado. And I remember walking in and telling my boss at the time, an amazing guy named Tom Blinn, I said, hey, Tom, I said, you, you, uh, you nailed it, and I'm going to stay, and I'm going to fix this. And so the rest is history. But my lesson yeah. in that was how, how did I let it get so far that my frustration boiled over to the point that I accepted another job? And, and what I learned through that experience was when I had frustrations, when I had issues, instead of putting them off and not dealing with them, I needed to bring them up because in and of themselves, they were all completely solvable, but I lumped them together in one mass that looked way bigger than the each it were individually. And I think in a lot of times in our lives, that's the way things go. Why do people get divorced? They let frustration build up over time to the point where they explode and then it's irreparable. You know, why, why do people leave jobs like I almost did at that point in time is I let all these little things build up and blow up to the point that, you know, it was, that I wanted to quit. Why do friends not talk to each other? Why do parents not talk to children? All of these things, I think, at least in my simple mind, are explained by the fact that a lot of times we let, the, you know, these little anthills become mountains by not addressing them when you're feeling the slight, when you're feeling the frustration, when you're feeling the pain of things. So what, when you decided to leave Procter & Gamble and go to Google, what was different about that? Yeah, it's a really good question. The, the difference for me was, so I had been, you know, fast forward many, <clears throat> many years. I had an incredible run. I got to live in Asia for six years and, 
in Korea, in Japan. I was a VP, general manager for a decade. I was a business unit president. And I, I thought, gosh, you know, I, I always thought in my mind I would retire at Procter & Gamble and, mm-hmm. and have a great and long career. And I remember when A.G. Lafley came back in uh, the spring of 2013, he sat down with each, each of the operating unit presidents and having conversations with each of us. And I remember when I, when I came in, he said, Kirk, you know, I'm hearing amazing things about what you're doing. Your business results are great. I'm excited about your future here. You've got a really bright future. In fact, you know, so bright, it's really up to you how high you go. And um, so, you know, he was very kind and gracious in his words. And I remember leaving the office thinking, gosh, I'm so flattered. But do I, kind of looking forward, I knew I wasn't the next guy because I was one of the youngest on his, his senior leadership team. Okay. So as I did the math and said, gosh, I'm going to be 35 years with, with the company by the time I have my shot at the ring. And is that really what I do? And I had this odd feeling when I should have walked out euphoric, I was walking out kind of conflicted. Mm. And so uh, fast forward a month, and AG had assigned a board mentor to me, a guy by the name of Scott Cook, who's the chairman of Intuit, um, former Proctor employee, started Intuit, we all know as Quicken, QuickBooks, and so on. And so he uh, he said, hey, Kirk, we got to get you and your leadership team out to the Valley, and we'll bring it into it, a few of the other tech companies, some startups to give your team inspiration about what you know, what you could do um, in a big company by being inspired by what others are doing in the tech community. So I go, we have these incredible two days. The last company we meet with is Google. And I'm with my my 11 direct reports, all vice presidents um, in respective functions. And I remember we were meeting with one of the senior HR leaders of the senior HR leader of the business organization. And she said, you know, we're talking about how they hire people. And she said, we have left the most senior job we've had open for for a year because we just haven't found the right person. And I had one of those delusion of grandeur moments because <laughs> I felt like, oh, she must be talking to me. And I quickly snapped out of it. But I remember going home and having this sort of nagging feeling in my gut, like, is she is she talking to me? And um, and so I remember it was like three or four days later. And my my I have a very strong faith, and I, and I really felt like the Holy Spirit was tugging at me, saying, you know, you need to open your eyes, you need to open your ears, this is something that you need to think about and, and react to. And, and so I was laying in bed, and my wife was, I looked over at my wife and said, hey, I, I keep having this feeling like, like God is trying to get me to open my eyes to other possibilities and explain to her what had happened when I was at Google. <laughs> I remember she was reading something, and she looked over me, over the top of her her reading glasses and said, well, you know, she probably doesn't know who you are because she had made the statement in the meeting about uh, couldn't find the right person. She goes, probably didn't know who you are, but, you know, if you feel the need to reach out, because our spouses have a great way of keeping us humble, (laughs) if you feel the need to reach out, go ahead and do that. And then she paused for dramatic effect. But there is no way I'm moving to California. Famous uh, last words. Yeah, famous, very famous last words. And so I remember... The next day, reaching out to her and just saying, thank you, yada, yada. And by the way, you said something at the end of our meeting, and if it wasn't intended for me, please delete this email. And uh, she emails me back in a couple hours and says, you know, all the platitudes. Oh, by the way, we heard you were perceptive, dot, 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 smiley face. And then the dance, the dance ensued, the conversations began, and I could talk for hours about all of what I call the breadcrumbs of God, where there it was such a clear indication that 
he wanted me out here that he you know and i'm four years into it and i can tell you why i think he wanted me out here but but i don't know if that's the point of the story the point was that i you know the question well i kind of want to know now now i do want to know okay. too okay okay <laughs> um, so, so the the first part of the question is why did I go to Google? I, I I felt like God was calling me to do it. In fact, when I went in to resign, I remember talking with AG, and he said, "What job do you want? You know, what what it, what will it take to keep you here?" And I said, "You know, honestly, AG, I said you're you're a role model in my life, and you know, I would tell you if if I were doing this for other reasons other than the simple fact that I felt." called by God to do this. And it's it's hard to argue the God right. card the God card in a uh, in a meeting with the CEO of a major Fortune fifty company. And uh and you know, then the conversation shifted at that point to well let's talk about how we can then partner, let's talk about, you know, when you can come back, let's talk about you know, things like that that change the tone of the conversation. But so the the breadcrumbs of things that happened um on my journey here because honestly we love Cincinnati. We were growing. We were content. We were comfortable. Our family was there. Our friends were there. Our faith community was there. Everything that was meaningful in our lives was in Cincinnati. And so, when when this conversation first started, I was I was intrigued, but I was resistant because I thought, well, I'll see where this goes. And I I've had plenty of those conversations over the years with companies, but ultimately never made the move because it just wasn't compelling enough, and I wasn't being led to do something I was doing it more out of my own ego or self-interest than I was pursuing kind of a greater calling. And so, you know, a couple things, very memorable things that stand out to me and why, why these are God's breadcrumbs is I remember we were a couple months into discussions and it was very clear after several interviews that I was, that there was high interest on their end and I was very interested as well. But I kept praying and saying, God, is this really what you want me to do? Because I don't know that I want to live in California and pay 10x more for a house. I right. I don't know if I want to be in a place where 4% of people on a given weekend go to church. I, I don't know if I want to be, you know, in a place where it's so fast-paced that you lose touch with your family and your friends. And I, and I had tons of reasons. So I, had, I went to a church in Cincinnati called Crossroads, and it's um, an amazing place where I, I really went way deeper with God and had such a great faith community. But I remember I had just given a message over the weekend, and this was in, I think it was May of 2013. And and I remember it was Fourth of July weekend, and I thought, hey, you know what, God, I know this probably isn't meant to be, and I will I will actually put a pin in this one because I'm going to forward at this point the chief HR officer at chief HR officer at Google had gotten involved, and so. I sent an I sent an email with a link to my talk and said, "Hey guys, I just I know we're at the point in this process where we kind of have to fish or cut bait." I said, "I want you to know who I really am, and this is this is a talk I gave about building people, but it's it's how I think about work, but it's also how I think about every aspect of my life, and and this is who I am all the time. And if this is too over the top, if it's if it's not consistent with how Google works and operates or wants people to be, then it's probably not the right fit." And so I pushed that button. I thought, I will never hear from them again. <laughs> and uh, and then, so fast forward a couple of days, I hadn't heard from them. I'm like, okay, I knew it, God. I knew you were just testing me. This is my Abraham moment. I've got my knife up, and you pull me back from the edge. And, and so I get an email. Um, you will love Google. Google will love you, dot, dot, dot. Hope we can make this work. I'm like, oh, uh. come on, God, are you kidding me? Um, because it was such a clear like pin in the fact that God had my attention at that point. So 
And then, and then uh, we were at a, in a series at church called um, Go Forth. And it was really about how God calls some people to be pioneers, and he calls some people to be settlers. And I remember sitting in church, and uh, a Pastor Chuck Mingo was, was giving this talk about the difference between pioneers and settlers, and he was just talking to my wife and I's heart because he said, you know, are you that person that's comfortable and content where you are, and, and, you're, and, and you feel like you're growing, but are you? And he went through these things that kind of outlined if you're growing or not. And I remember just having this thinking feeling like, hmm, am I really, am I really growing or am I just comfortable? <laughs> and then I remember looking over at my wife and she had steers, or tears oh. streaming down her cheek, stream, like literally streaming down her cheeks. And she looked over at me and said, we're moving to California. <sighs> and, and, you know, we didn't decide in that moment, but it was the first time we kind of acknowledged that there was a really high probability that we'd be doing this. And kind of the, the big pin in it yeah. was... Uh, was they had made me an offer. Okay. And it was a very, it was an amazing offer um, materially. But again, my whole thing was I'm not chasing the money. I'm not chasing the title because I knew I'd never be the CEO of Google. I knew I'd never, I would never um, rise to the level I was at P&G just because this is an engineering-led company and I'm not an engineer. And okay. So I knew that. But I said, you know what, God, if you want me to go, I'll go. And it's not about any of that. But so I was I remember praying fervently, and I called a really close friend of mine, a guy by the name of Jim Bechtold. And uh, Jim, Jim said, where are you right now? I said, well, I'm in my office. And I was in my huddle room, which was off of my office, and he said, hey, I want you to put me on speakerphone. I want you to drop to your knees, and I want to say a prayer. I want, I want to just ask God for a clear visualization of what he wants you to do. And, and Jim is one of the best prayer warriors you'd ever meet. So and Jim, Jim worked at P&G with you, too? Jim did. In fact, Jim was my successor in Asia. When I left Asia, Jim took my job in Asia and then subsequently left after he got back to the U.S., but we, to this day, remain very close friends. In fact, he was one of the first people in my life that ever built into me from a faith standpoint and invited me to small groups, which I conveniently always lied about not being able to go to um, <laughs> early in my career because I thought you shouldn't mix work and faith. Right. And so, um, and so Jim's like, put your hands in the air drop to your knees and we're going to we're going to ask God to help clarify this. And so here I was. And so in my huddle room there was a and this is an important part at the end of the story but there was like a a skywalk literally right outside of the huddle room and I always had the shades closed because a lot of people traffic by. For some reason this day I had the shades open. So as I'm down on my knees, my hands in the air, Jim prays for probably a minute or two. And so as I open my eyes um, to stand up, I look over and there's like three or four people who awkwardly like look away because they no. were clearly seeing me. Yeah. So, so is Jim, so I'll come back to that in a second. So as Jim um, is praying, he said, Kirk, you know, when I was praying, I had a picture come to my mind. He said um, his, his second child, oldest son, his name's David. David's now, I think, a junior at Michigan. And uh, he said, as I was praying for you, I, ha I had this very clear picture. He said, David and I decided we were going to go skydiving. And most normal people will say, I'm going to go next Saturday. I'm going to show up. We're going to do a tandem dive. I'm going to check off my bucket list and be good to go. He said, but we decided to do something different. We decided to do solo. And so we had to go to like a class and spend eight hours learning how to skydive and pack our chutes. And he's like, what man takes his 16-year-old son <laughs> solo skydiving on their first time out? 
so he said, you know, we're up and we're getting, you know, 10,000 feet and the, the door opens and he said, I go to the door and I'm holding on and my knees are shaking so badly, I can't jump. I can't jump. <clears throat> and he said, then from behind, I feel a hand on my shoulder and it's David mm-hmm. saying, Dad, we prepared for this. It's okay. Jump. God has us. God prepared us for this. Jump, Dad. And he said, so I jump. And he said, it's the most spectacular feeling you can imagine. You're free falling and you pull your chute and it goes up and then you float down. And he said, Kirk, I, I had this picture of you standing on that plane and God putting his hand on your shoulder and telling you he's prepared you for this, that he wants you to do this. And that he'll be there in faith to bring you safely to the ground. He will do no harm for you. And, and I, 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 I get chills telling that wow. story. Um, because, and, I, and, I, and I'll never forget it because it, it literally in my mind, I'm like, that's exactly what God wants me to do. He wants me to follow him in faith. I have no idea why. I have no idea why he wants me to leave everything behind here. But, you know, that, that's what I'm going to do. And that was that Did was that the seal defining. the deal? Yeah. Totally. I called my wife, literally hung up with Jim, called my wife. I'm in the same room. And I said, I just talked to Jim and I said, we're going. And, and so I'm emotional. And so I walk out of my office and one of the guys that was standing out there, um, awkwardly as I was down praying, <laughs> he comes around the corner. He's like, Hey, uh, Hey, I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't want you to, to be freaked out, but you know, honestly, it was the middle of the day. We saw you on your knees and your hands in the air. And we thought one of two things, either something was going on health wise and you weren't feeling well, or two, there was a problem on the business so severe that you felt you had to pray midday, and we thought we should maybe sell our stock. <laughs> so, you know, these guys, these guys were literally walking by, and, and I thought that was such a fun, you know, I think God has an incredible sense of humor. And I thought, you know, I come out very emotional, like, holy cow, I'm leaving this place that I've grown up in, yeah. and God gives me somebody to walk up at the right moment and gives me just this incredible word of encouragement. And, you know, Four years later, I think God brought me out here to be a very different light in a place that, um, you know, doesn't have what I'd call the prevalence of faith-based people that the Midwest would have. Yeah. You know, and and my first year here was incredibly difficult. There were many days where I was like, God, why, why am I here? Well, Um, and I, I think it's important for listeners to know too that you. I mean, you grew up in a very modest income family, right? I mean, you grew up. Was it Middletown? Ohio. Yeah, well, it was uh, it was Hamilton, Hamilton, close. Ohio, um, and so I mean, th- what you've achieved was is incredibly remarkable, and not something that you were shown at an early age, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's true, and I'm just thankful and blessed that I that I've had the opportunity to do it because you know I didn't have a lot of a lot of role models from a corporate standpoint. My mom and dad were both blue collar employees at Ford. Um, moved continuously we we i went to 10 schools between kindergarten and high school so we were kind of an army family without really being in the army we were always chasing or always outrunning i should say layoffs um we lived on welfare and aid to dependent children for a year um it was just it was a it was a rough upbringing but what it instilled in me was this you know fanatical desire to to never have my kids go through something like that and yeah. and while you know in the beginning that was more about the material part of 
of the equation. You know, I, I, I don't remember if I told you the story, but when I when I had the opportunity to go to Korea, um, when the company asked me, I'm like, "Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? This is a this is a guy who, when I graduated from university, had never been west of Chicago or east of New York City. And if someone <laughs> would have told me I would be living in Korea, I would have laughed at them because the only thing I knew about Korea was MASH and CNN headline news. That was it. That's the only thing I knew about Korea. So, you know, I, I we we go to Korea and you know I'm a I'm a seven-year promoted to marketing director guy, which is lightning fast. And here I am in the middle of the Asian currency crisis upon landing there. Three months later, the Asia contagion hits in 1997, and the Thai bot falls, the Korean won falls. I mean, all these currencies are losing 60, 70, 80% of their value. And so it was this incredible period of my life. And I was working 18 hours a day, six days a week, and, and, you know, I literally would leave in the morning before my girls at the time, my four and one-year-old daughters would wake up and mm-hmm. I would come home after they went to bed. At best, I was a part-time dad. I was a weekend dad and, and part-time husband. And I hate saying that out loud, but it's the truth. And then the summer of 99, a couple years into that, two and a half years into that, um, my wife and kids were back in Cincinnati for the summer. And I happened to be in New York. And to condense the story, we found out that my six-year-old had kidney cancer and it was just this unbelievable shot through my heart and there are so many things that occurred in this story that you know could go into great detail on but what it what it brought me to and she had to have her kidney removed had part of her colon removed had six months of chemotherapy but it just shocked me into realizing like why today is called the present because it's a gift you know, it's not the past, future, it's the present for a reason. And I was so focused and preoccupied on the future and running from my past that I tried to make sure that my girls would never have to go through that. Yeah. Now I have four kids, but my girls at the time would never. And I justified what I was doing from a work standpoint on the fact that I never wanted to put my kids through it. The reality is what I went through as a kid gave me incredible work ethic. It gave me, it gave me incredible focus, um, persistence, resilience, whatever the keywords are about, you know, quote-unquote succeeding from a, the world standards. It instilled that in me. But my, I really came to my faith for the first time when my daughter was going through that, which is odd because a lot of people go from their faith. I actually found my faith in that mm. situation. But it caused me to be a lot more... Um, measured and how I think about my work, my career, how, how I, you know, how I plan my day, how I spend my time and much more intentional about my family. And the, the great thing was, again, by the world standards, I, I, I got even more successful. You know, I was one of the youngest really? VPs in the company. I was one of the youngest presidents in the company, if not the, for a period of time in both cases. But what, what really was, you know, miraculous to me and how, the currency of the kingdom is different than the currency of the world because the world would tell you, conventional wisdom would tell you, work hard, put your head down, get promoted, accumulate things, and then one day you'll be able to enjoy it all. But the currency of the kingdom says, no, put God first and put your family behind God and then you know your career, and when you, when you do that, great blessings will come of that. And, and for me, that was definitely the case um, because I've had... For a, for a poor kid from the Midwest who had no vision of his future to be doing, I, I literally pinch myself every <laughs> single day that I get up. I'm like, 
oh my gosh, this is this is a dream to me. It really is, and um, it's just it's just for again for me just a reinforcement that God has way greater things for me than I can ever imagine or ever see, and so I'm just buckling up and you know on the ride wherever that may take me. I want to take a minute to thank each of you for listening to Failing Forward. Since we launched the show, we are in iTunes Top 100 Business Podcasts. We love what we've been doing here at Failing Forward, and we hope you do too. So follow us on social media at Fail Forward Pod, but also give us some feedback. What do you like? What could we do differently? Who do you want to hear from? I also want to share with you two reviews that we received. The first one is from Gina in Cincinnati. And she said that she forwarded the podcast to all four of her kids. That's awesome. We also heard from Chris in Switzerland. Here's what he said about Tony Miller's episode. It was very inspiring. I especially liked the part about how he auditions every day to be the best husband possible. I take inspiration from that, he said. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Gina, for your reviews. We'd love to hear from others. Now back to the episode. So I was going to ask you um, kind of a what's the secret to your success? Um, because when I told people, and I shared this with you before we started recording, but when I told people that you were going to be on the show, every person was like, oh, my God, I love him. He's so awesome. Like just singing your praises. And so I, I wanted to be like, OK, what's the secret to the success? And I think you've kind of answered that. Placing God first and family second. Is there any other secret to success? Um, you know, it, it, I mean... And living in the present, you said that too. Yeah, yeah, living in the present for sure. And I, I think for me, as, as I think about my career and the through lines of things that... Because there are a lot of great people in corporate America who are way smarter than me, for sure. And probably harder workers and probably, there's always somebody better at you than something and masses of people better than you it's something and i think for me what i always try to focus on is being an authentic version of myself you know i i um i think back to a really important lesson somebody taught me when i got promoted to general manager i i, I asked several people at proctor like hey what separates good from great and probably the one of the biggest pieces of advice i got is someone told me be a we manager, not an I manager, or an I be a we leader, not an I leader. And and, and I would and, and they said print out. And at the time, what the company did is every general manager every month wrote a one pager and talked about their business, what was going on, and and so he, he said print all those out on your next trip back to the U.S. and read every one of them, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So I printed at the time there were 100 probably 70 general managers around the world printed every one of the letters out. I'm on a plane, 14 hours, so I had plenty of time to read them. And what was very interesting is I got about 50 in, I'm like, oh, I see what he's saying now, because there was a, a set of leaders who said, I did this, and I did that, and this is what I believe, this is what I do. But there was a great majority of leaders who were all about we. Here's what mm -hmm. we did. Here's an amazing person in my organization. Here's a, you know, and they, they talked about the collective we. And uh, the, the business author, Ken Blanchard, said once, you have to be a somebody before you can be a nobody. And I think that's, you know, the whole idea of, you know, giving away credit versus taking credit. And that's, yeah. there's truth to that. You have to, you have to make your mark, and then you can give away the credit. But, but 
what I learned is that when you when you rise to a certain level, you have to pull people along with you, and you have yeah. to give them way more credit than you take. Because I think when you show up like an authentic version of yourself, and you're not one thing at work and one thing at home, because people see through that. Mm-hmm. Organizations see through that. And and so a small example, but back you know when I was when I was talking about why God brought me here, I had a really really rough first year, and I found out about a year into it, I had diagnosed with cancer, which again was another sucker punch for me because. I said, God, are you kidding me? You bring me out here. I'm struggling in my first year at work because I come in as a senior leader, and you know, and it's not easy learning a new industry. It's not easy learning a new company, especially when people feel like you've gotten a job they wanted to get, and so on. It was a really tough professional first year. Personally, you know, I hadn't connected with a friend group like I had in Cincinnati. I didn't find a faith community that really resonated with me, and now I have this, and I'm not near anybody that I love and who loves me. And and it was just such a flippin' shock um, to get this. Yeah. But I remember I had to come in and tell my boss because I was going to have surgery and get treatment. And um, and somebody counseled me like, you know, because I said I'm going to send, and I told my, t- so I knew when his team found out, my, my peers, that it would trickle through my organization. At the time, I had probably 500 people in my organization. And I said... Um, I said, hey, I'm going to send a video out to let people know what's going on. And so someone said, oh, I don't know that I do that. That's really personal. People get worried. I'm like, no, that's actually how I roll. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's how I roll. So I, I put this five-minute video together and basically laid out what was going on. And I said, and I have a quote above my desk by a, a guy named Charles Swindoll, and it's, it's entitled Attitude. And the very last sentence says, <clears throat> excuse me, he mm-hmm. says, life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And I said, that's how I live my life, and I'm going to get through this, and I'm going to learn something from this no matter what it is. And you know what? If it's my time, it's my time. I've had a great life, and I was very honest with the organization. And, and, I, and I finished it up by saying, hey, two things, though, um, that you can do for me. The first is if you could just do your jobs and deliver, that's just one less thing I have to worry about. And I said, the second thing, if you're so inclined and if you believe in this, I'd love your prayers. Because I believe in the power of prayer, and I believe that great things happen because of that. But I said, again, it's only if you're so inclined. So I did that late in the day, and I come in the next morning and open my email, and I had like 250 email messages back from my organization, sharing with me the most incredible stories of their own journeys, of their own struggles. There's a woman I worked with who I'd been in five or six meetings with, late 30s, couples, you know, 13, 11-ish kids, not quite teenage, both not quite teenagers, found out she shared with me that her husband had died of testicular cancer six months earlier and that she had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh. And she was encouraging me and cheering me up. And I thought, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? <laughs> but the point of all that to say that authenticity as a leader opens things up because I, I would run through walls of fire for people that I believe are authentically interested in me and authentically interested in helping me, not just as a professional, but as a person. And I think most, most people want that um, in, their, in their careers and in their lives. And, and so for me, just what I try to be is who I am all the time. Um, yeah, I fall short of that sometimes, but I, I really try to be the guy I am at home, the guy I am at work, the guy I am coaching kids sports, the guy I am at church all the time. And I think a lot of times we try to, you know, I, people use the word in business compartmentalize. Yeah. 
I think that's absolutely the worst thing we I can do. I think that's so hard to do. I don't know how people yeah. do it. I, I totally agree with you. I, I can't do it. I, I think I used to be pretty good at it. Um, but then what I realized was when you compartmentalize, you you are not, it, it's too much energy to compartmentalize mm. because you have to be something different to every group of people you interact with. And God designed us for a reason the way we are. And, you know, can we fine-tune it and, you know, from how we operate personally to professionally and vice versa? Absolutely. But he designed us in a way that we're supposed to be like that all the time. And so I think that authenticity part for me is a critically important um, part of success. And the last thing I'd say, in addition to what you mentioned as well, um, for me is just this concept of, of resiliency. And, and I think... It's being, you know, resiliency is being able to um, get through things, being able to push through things, no matter how bleak or how challenging or how difficult they are. And I, I learned that as a kid, frankly, growing up. Yeah. Um, you just had to fight through things because there were no other options. Nobody was going to fight for you. You had to fight through yourself. And, you know, and I, 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 I often tell the story. There was a, there was a guy who, who was probably my best finance manager at Proctor, um, I had I was running the North the North American baby care business at the time, and they had sent two or three candidates to me. It was a very senior job. It was one of the biggest um, businesses in the region, second biggest business in the region, and and they just didn't fit because one of the questions I always ask at the end of an interview is, "Give me the toughest thing you've ever been through in your life. How did you overcome it? And then how does it impact you today?" And you'd be shocked how many people come up with, you know, I call them the mamby-pamby things. You know, I just go, well, I didn't make the seventh grade, um, you know, uh, basketball team. And yeah, I, I know that's probably meaningful, but that's not a life shock. Right, you know? Or, right. you know, I didn't, I, didn't get, I didn't get this job I applied to coming out of college that I really wanted. I mean, that's, that's not a life shock. But so I go, and, and most of these three people, when I ask the question, I'm like, you know, they're good. They're very competent and qualified as finance leaders. I want people who are going to be able to fight through the inevitable downturns in business because business is hard. There is no northeasterly track on every business. When it dips, that shows the true character and grit of the people that are working on it. And it's inevitable that it happens because there's business cycles. So this guy comes in, and uh, German national, and he's clearly nervous. He was an associate director, not even a director yet, so this would have been a promotion. He was working on a transition of the Gillette business in clearly nervous so i actually flipped the interview and i started with this i'm like because i wanted to calm him down yeah yeah and he he thought about it for a second and he said you know he said can i give you a personal example i said oh i love it it'd be great he said so um i i love motorcycles and he said i grew up in germany and so love getting on my motorcycle in the autobahn because you know there's no speed limits and it was just so freeing and i used to love riding it into to work in the morning and he said one morning I get up, and it was uh, late fall, and it was a beautiful morning, but as I'm riding up the Audubon, and I kind of have to go up into this, um, not mountain pass, but you know, a hilly pass, and he said, as I'm coming up, the fog is there, and so the ground's just a little bit slick, and he said, I'm coming around a turn going 200 <gasps> kilometers per hour, 100, 120 miles an hour. So he said, as I come around this bend, which I've done every day for a long time, I come around this bend, and a truck had jackknifed across oh the road. Oh, my gosh. And he said, I'm going 200 kilometers an hour, and I have no other choice but to lay my bike down, or I'm going to be you know, decapitated. 
So he said, I lay my bike down. As I lay my bike down, my ankle gets rolled underneath me. And he said, so as I'm laying there, like doing the check of, systems check of, am I alive? He said, I look down and I see the sole of my boot facing at me. He said, oh, that can't be good. So he had a gruesome compound fracture of his lower leg. Gruesome. So imagine that popping up. So he said, as the the EMTs come, obviously, to get him, he said they were going to give him a a vial of morphine. He said, no, 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 I I, I don't want it. I want to be lucid when I get to the hospital. I I don't want... I don't want any medicine. I, I want to get there. I want to be able to make sure I save my leg. And so he said they bring him into the operating room, and he said he overheard the doctor saying he was going to amputate his leg because it was one of the worst breaks he's ever seen. And and so he heard him, and he said, hey, doc, you know, in German, of course, yeah. um, you, please don't amputate. Please don't amputate my leg. Do whatever you have to do to save it. And the doctor said, hey, even if I save your leg, you are not going to be able to ever use it. You'll be on a cane or crutches and I'll have to be back in here six months or a year from now amputating your leg and he said I'll take that risk please do everything you can to save my leg and he said so he wakes up and he looks down and he's got 10 toes he's like oh doctor comes in you know I did the best I could I'm not sure you're you're ever going to be able to walk on that again but you know I wanted to honor your wishes so he said Kirk 18 months later I ran my first marathon <gasps> and I, I I reached out my hand I said you're hired and uh, I, but I'll never forget that because that's an example to me of resiliency of yeah. somebody who has had. And he, and he said, "What that does for me today is," he said, "I look at challenges as opportunities to show what I'm capable of, not to run away from." And and I I love that notion. Say that again. Say oppor- that again. Uh, challenges. Said, I look at challenges as opportunities to show what I'm capable of, yeah. not things to run away from. And and I just thought. That is such a beautiful way to articulate, you know, why why things that are difficult in our lives end up being those things that actually transform us the most. And you know, I use the the analogy of of coal. You know, coal under tremendous pressure for millions of years becomes a beautiful diamond. Right. And you know, and if there's no pressure, it's just a black lump of coal that's good for burning. Yeah. Right. So the difference between pressure and no pressure is incredible. So I, I view my own life like when things are going too well, I look for opportunities to have a little bit of pressure and tension because I feel like that's when you grow the most. And so I think this, this notion for me of resiliency is another really critical trait that I look for in people I hire, but I also look for in myself because I think I'm a better version of myself when I have to push through and fight through things that are super challenging and, and and things that I wouldn't necessarily like coming to the tech industry out of CPG, completely right. different different industries. And you talk about needing resiliency and learning a whole new language and learning something from the ground up at you know 24 years into your corporate career. It's humbling, but I'll tell you what. Looking back now, four years later, it was the best decision I have made career-wise up to this point. So can- because it taught me new skills, it gave me new. And it made me more resilient because it was a tough slog for that year. So can you close with, tell us why you think God brought you out to that job? Yeah, so I think, you know, when, uh, like I said, when I when I came out here, and I gave you a couple of examples, like the opportunity to, in a very secular place, be a visible, faithful follower 
I think that's one of the reasons that God brought me out here because the examples I was able to share, you know, when I was able to share with my organization my faith because I, w- I asked them for prayer and, and to know, yeah. to open up those gates of communication that I never had the opportunity to open up before because I was here. I was here when I was diagnosed with cancer because the guy who operated on me was one of the top five surgeons of the type of cancer that I had um, in the world. Wow. Talk about how God works in incredible ways. Um, When I was able to, uh, when I first moved here, I got invited through a friend of a friend of a friend to speak at the Silicon Valley Prayer Breakfast, which is an annual event of business leaders in Silicon Valley and politicians and sports people come together to talk about their faith. And when they first asked me, I'm like, you know, I've only been here for three or four months, and this is a year from now. I don't know how much value I'll be able to provide. Well, three weeks before I had this speaking engagement, I was actually diagnosed with cancer, so it was part of my testimony in front of a thousand believers and non-believers that created connections for me and a depth of connection that I never would have had had I not been here, had I not had the opportunity to share how, even in the darkest of times, God has always been there for me, and it's it's being able to. And did you get some uh, people? Coach kids. Did you get some oh, more sorry. some people from? For you mentioned earlier about a friend group. Did you make some friends out of that too? Did have have awesome. several friends that uh, that came out of that who invited me. You know, I had several people reach out and said, I'd, I'd love to get together with you, and, and, you know, just incredible people that God has blessed me with knowing. Um, so it's just, it, it, and it, you know, another one is I, I coach kids sports, and in the Midwest, you know, it was, it was no big deal to pray with your team before a game. I used to do it every sport I coached, I always prayed with my kids. I come out here and coach kids football, it's totally not the norm, <laughs> yeah. totally not the norm. So I remember after the first game that I coached, before the game, took all my kids and on our sideline we circled up we held hands and we prayed and one of the parents took a picture of it and posted it on facebook and said i'd never thought i'd see the day when kids are kneeling and praying before a youth football game in northern california and it was in a a positive way so i just i think there's been so many examples like that where god has helped me get over the fact that the traffic and the taxes here are absolutely awful (laughs) (laughs) And, and he and he and he pulled me out of the place that I love with all my heart, and I'm no longer around Skyline Chili and and UDF ice cream and all you know all of my hometown favorites and friends and University of Cincinnati and Crossroads, all the things that I love. Um, but he's he's enabled me to see that his vision for me is way better than my vision for myself. And even though I was comfortable and content, and you know I'm just living the life I thought I would live in Cincinnati, he's given me even greater things to do here. He's given me a purpose and a focus in a way that I wouldn't have anticipated. So I'm just a super blessed guy. And, you know, my, I always tell people, God transformed me, but transformation doesn't mean perfection. Um, the difference is I used, to, I used to run away from God, and now I run to God. And I am a flawed dude who has problems that everybody else has, and I have days of doubt, just like everybody else. Yeah. But the difference now is I know that God has a greater plan for me and a greater purpose for me, and He's blessing me through that, even there, even though it may be things that I don't want to be blessed with, like cancer um, or you know having to move. But it's funny how hindsight and faith give you the clearest vision of what really your life could be. So, I think that's 
a perfect wrap up. <laughs> that was amazing. Is there anything that you think we missed that you would want to share? Um, I don't think so. That was a that was a weaving narrative, but I I think uh, I, I think no, okay. I think it was a good. It was not weaving for me. Okay, good. Well, you're the important one, so as long as you feel and I'm, comfortable. I'm looking at the people in the booth too, and they're nodding, saying, "No, it was not a, it was it was not weaving. It was freaking awesome." Oh, I'm gonna, thank you. I'm actually, it's terrible. It was fucking awesome. Sorry, I have to cuss every so often. It was great, <laughs> All right, Kirk. Even better. It was even so even good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, I want to. Okay, we're. We're going to, oh, I need to close out with a thank you, but then I want to tell you a thank you too, a personal thing that we won't have recording. Okay, Kirk, I want to say thank you so much for being with us today. I loved your quote too around life is 10% what happens to me or to us and 90% how I respond to it. So you are such a gift to us. Thank you so much for your time because I know you're super busy. Thank you, sir. I really appreciated it. Take care. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, Anna Bolke, our producer, and the incredible team at Gwyn Sound. If you liked this episode, please, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and write a review. Did you know that the brain actually scans for social threat six times every second? Join us on the next episode when I interview Sarah Heisdu, our neuroscience expert, and she talks about how you can actually train the brain to be more resilient around failure.